Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to the word of the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. This is the word of the Lord. The message translation renders it this way. Parents, I don't know why he did that, but we'll just go with it. Don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. I did some good work with the Greek this week. The word provoke. Fathers, do not provoke your children. New Living says aggravate. The word provoke is erethidzo, which means to irritate, to incite, to make resentful, to rouse to anger, to rouse to fight, to stir up, to provoke, or to kindle a spark into a flame with a bellows. It can also just be used to talk about to embitter someone. I think it's interesting that in the context, you know, Paul usually starts his, his uh, letters by talking about what the gospel is, and then he kind of ends by talking about how the gospel works itself out in relationships. I think this is kind of a fascinating instruction to dads. Don't incite your children to resentment lest they become discouraged. Become discouraged, afumeo, to be discouraged, to feel like giving up, to lack motivation, to become emotionally fatigued, dejected, to lose hope, to be ready to give up due to disheartenedness, mental gloominess. In other words, dads, if you're too hard to please, your kids will stop trying. If you're too hard to please your kids will stop trying. To turn this verse uh, from a negative, what to avoid, to a positive, what to pursue, which is its clear implication, I think it would read something like this. Fathers, deal with your children in such a way that their hearts are brought encouragement and hope. Do you think that's fair? Am I treating the text correctly? Don't provoke your kids lest they become discouraged. So the positive would be, fathers, deal with your children in such a way that brings encouragement and hope to their hearts. This, of course, is an instruction about parenting our kids out of the gospel. Parenting our kids as, an, as a reflection of how we're experiencing God's parenting or God's fathering of us. I think it's interesting that you know, we see throughout Paul's preaching the idea of we're not under law, but we're under grace. And when we were under law, the law provoked sin. Now that we're under grace, grace will provoke righteousness. And now he's essentially making a, a fa- an application to fathers of the same kind of dynamic. Nobody likes to feel judged Nobody likes to feel criticized. Nobody likes to feel constantly measured up and found wanting. Nobody becomes encouraged when after you've given it all your effort, your effort is ignored, but your flaws are noticed. Nobody likes that. 
Nobody likes to live under the watchful eye of a judgmental heart. Nobody will stay encouraged for long if they believe that the person they're trying to please is going to be displeased no matter what they do. We, don't, we wouldn't be able to love God if we felt like that under his fathering. And Paul's saying, fathers, don't relate to your kids in that way. Your kids will become discouraged if that's how they experience your fathering. The very worst thing is to live under a father you feel doesn't like you. It's fascinating that Paul says law provokes sin, but grace cultivates love. And this is why I say that this verse is actually about gospel fathering. It's Paul's keen insight about living from God's affirmation and affection and approval, not for it, from it, about God's kindness leading us to repentance, about the lavish grace being poured out and then bearing good fruit in our lives. So Paul says, dads, do that with your kids, just like God in Christ is doing with you. It's about gospel parenting, gospel fathering. Gospel fathering is a dad who is slow to anger, easy to please, hard to offend, gentle with correction, though the correction is firm, and never withholding affection. A gospel father will say, I love you, I'm proud of you, I'm here for you, constantly. A gospel father is attempting to try to cultivate a safe connection, a safe place between them and the child so that the child will actually be able to come talk to them when they need help. Now, none of us dads is doing that perfectly. But our relationship with our Heavenly Father is our model in this. And he's what it looks like to let our fathering be a source of hope and joy in our kids' hearts instead of our fathering provoking bitterness and discouragement in our kids. Um, let's see. Where's Israel? Is he in here? No. The other week, um, we were having some interaction, and I said something that he got very emotional about, started kind of, he needed to take a moment by himself, and Carrie came to me and said, you need to draw him out. And I said, look, I'm fine with him being upset. I said, you made a mess, clean it up, no big deal. It's okay with me if he gets emotional about it. It doesn't bother me. I'm not going to not tell him what's real and what's, what I'm expecting of him just because he's going to get emotional. I'm, okay, I'm comfortable with it. She said, no, you're not hearing me. You need to draw him out. So I barked my manly command of, Israel, get in here and sit on my couch. So he walks in dejectedly and sits on the couch. And I said, what's going on with you? What's happening? He says, I feel like you're mad at me. I said, I'm mad at you. Of course I am. So what? People get mad at you. What's the big deal? What's really going on? He said, what do you mean? I said, is there something stressful going on in your life right now? He said, I don't know. I said, is there anything going on some, somewhere in your life that's causing you stress? Like you are, you're really getting, a, a, I'm just getting a big reaction of a small thing. What's going on? He goes, well, we're taking these tests at school and they determine what classes we're in next year. I said, oh, Really? Is that stressing you out? Yeah, like crazy. I said, is it stressing your friends out? Totally. I said, do you guys talk about it? He said, of course not. Why would we want to talk about something that's stressful? We just play basketball and talk about Fortnite. 
I said, why, you know, so we had a little talk about it. Next thing you know, we're joking. Next thing you know, I'm just listening to him tell me stories. Next thing you know, he's, he's talking up a storm, and then we're trying to solve riddles together. And we're sitting on the couch, and we're sharing this beautiful moment. And, I, and, and of course, part of me was like, see, Carrie, I know how to be a dad. You thought I was not a good dad, but I can be mean and nice all at the same time. Um, and I, so I was like, Carrie, it's fine. He and I are good. You don't have to be so protective of him. And she said, no, you, you're totally were mishearing me. I wasn't saying you were being harsh. I was saying something's going on, and you need to ferret out what it is. I said, oh, well, thank you. And I've noticed that. Carrie's like, you know, I'm like, Blunt calculator, do this, stop that, smack that one, this is wrong, don't do that, come here, be quiet, I don't care, no you're not, I'm hungry, no you're not, be quiet. And she's much more sensitive and so it's actually really helpful for me to have her feedback saying, I think you need to focus on a connection with that one right now. Do you know what I mean? She's really helpful with that. I'm intrigued though, you'll notice this. This passage, and we're about to read one in in Ephesians too, but this passage, like nowhere in this, this passage and Ephesians 6, 4, which is where we're going next, you could probably preemptively go there, are the clearest passages on kids' ministry in the whole New Testament. They're the clearest passages on parenting in the entire New Testament, and check this out, they don't mention mom at all. They're directed 100% explicitly at dad. That's so interesting to me. And I'm not going to try to explain that to you because I don't think I know the answer to why that is. But God knows why that is. And it's, I'm intrigued. I would be interested to hear your ideas about why. Why? Why are both of the passages, Colossians 3.21 and Ephesians 6.4, why are the, both of the passages on parenting that are the clearest in the New Testament directed at fathers, not parents? Why is there no mention of mothers and their responsibility? Why... Not. (laughs) I'm intrigued with this. It seems to me that fathers have a God-given capacity to name their children. And I don't mean literally choose their names. I mean endow a robust sense of identity on their kids. I'm intrigued with the amount of authority and influence that God gives fathers. I mean, even terrible fathers exert a very powerful effect on their kids, even when their kids are like, that's nonsense. But it's still something that's difficult to detach from. Even on adult kids, fathers have an authority. And I'll say it this way. We fathers have an authority to name our kids, to call them into being with what is in our hearts and what comes out of us in relationship to them. And I don't just mean words. I mean what comes out of us in relationship to them. I mean our whole being radiates what we think and feel about our kids and that, what radiates from us, will be a huge part of what shapes them during these formative years. I'm not trying to take away our kids' free will. I'm not trying to suggest that you know, that Paul's saying this mathematical equation of fathers don't discourage kids or they will become as though they have no choices of their own, as though they can't rise up and depend on Jesus and not get bitter even if we mistreat them. I'm not saying that. Plus, Paul's using the subjunctive Greek grammatical, uh, what's the word, grammatical uh, construction, which means a possibility, not a certainty. Hey, 
don't do this so that this will be less likely to be the outcome. He's not taking away free will. But we do have influence over likely outcomes. So each one of us in this room is probably right now either living down what we shouldn't have received from our dads or living out what we're grateful we have received from our dads. And for most of us, I think you would say, a little of both, Tim, a little of both. I'm living down some things and I'm living out some things. Dad wasn't perfect, but he meant well. And I think that's going to be the case for our kids too. They'll either be living down the lies instilled by our bad fathering or living out the true vocation we instilled through good fathering, but most likely it will be a combination of the both. When I teach Father Heart of God Week at Reach and we do the inner healing stuff, which is so intense, and we expose the things people are carrying that have shaped them, it always causes me to shake my head as I realize how many things that I want to come home and apologize to my children for. I realize just how fragile we humans are and how shaped we are by our family systems. I mean, moms too, of course, have influence to shape, but wow, the power of dad for good or evil. I come away from that time wanting to craft my preemptive apologies to my children and perhaps saving up for college is a bad investment. Maybe we should be saving up for counseling. I'm not sure. Um, That's a joke. You can laugh. But I do. I come away wanting to craft my preemptive apologies to my kids because I can already tell you some things that I pray the Lord will heal in my children from how I've treated them when I'm anxious, when I'm angry, or when I've simply been mistaken about what good parenting ought to be, what good fathering should be. And when I study passages like this, it only strengthens my resolve to say, okay, Lord, soften me, heal me, shape me, mold me into your likeness, so that I am also, like you are, hard to offend, easily pleased, gentle with correction, and never withholding of affection. Isn't that how God is to you? Hard to offend, easy to please, gentle with his correction, and never withholding affection. Like, what a beautiful image of what good fathering is. It's God. All right, now to the second verse. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. It sounds very similar to the first one, doesn't it? Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead... Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Exasperate, parorgizo, to cause someone to become provoked to anger, to rouse, to wrath, to exasperate, or to make angry. Wow, do you know what sort of things provoke someone to anger? One thing I know that can provoke people to anger is sarcastic mocking. (laughs) Can I get an amen? Have you as a dad ever sarcastically mocked your child with your tone of voice? I have. Constant criticism will do it. Negativity 
just basic negativity. Over time, we'll do it for sure. But you know what will dissipate anger? Proverbs 15.1 15, says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I learned in college that about 80% of communication is nonverbal. That means 80% of communication is not what we say, but how we say it. 80. 80%. And I agree with that, stati- that stat, even though it's kind of arbitrarily, like you, how do you, arri- you can't arrive at mathematically accurate conclusions about metaphysical personal realities. However, it's helpful. It's the voice, not the words. It's the face. It's the eyes. It's the tone that communicates the most important things. Incidentally, that's why anytime I'm in like digital means of communication... I always say digital means of communication like that just have words stripped from tone, like email, text, uh, Facebook Messenger, all that stuff, that's for information and affirmation. But if you need to do confrontation, then you'd better pick a means of communication that doesn't betray your intent. Because I can mishear your tone when you message me or email me. I can hear something that's meant in love as spoken in judgment. Tone is huge. So email, text, all that stuff, that's for information and affirmation. But if you have confrontation, you'd better do voice or face-to-face. That's free. Okay, don't don't, uh, incite them to anger, but bring them up, ektrafete, to nourish, to feed, to rear, to bring up, to provide food for, to nourish to maturity. That's a sweet word. That is a cool word. To nourish to maturity. Don't provoke to anger, but instead, nourish them, feed them. Not food. It's talking about an emotional, relational diet. It's creating this cultivated environment of healthy stuff here. Bring them up in the paideia and nuthesia of the Lord. The paideia, the training, instruction, discipline, Training with the goal of forming proper habits of behavior. Instruction which aims at the increase of virtue. The cultivation of mind and morals. That's interesting. The paideia, training. And the nuthesia, which is teaching. Training and teaching are not the same thing. Training is more like a personal trainer is working with you seeing what you need and, and shaping that to you, and the, and the teaching are more about the specific words spoken. That's, that's interesting to draw those distinctions, isn't it? But it's the training and the admonition. You guys know the word admonition. That's an interesting word. Like, I think a lot of people nowadays don't even want admonition to be a word in their Bible. They just want affection and affirmation. Never admonition. Here's, here's Nuthesia. Teaching, admonishment, Warning, ethical and corrective instruction with regard to belief and behavior. Hey, don't be like this. This is the outcome of that lifestyle. Hey, 
do be like this, this is the outcome of that lifestyle. Hey, avoid this kind of woman, son. Avoid this kind of man, daughter, because this is the outcome of those bad choices. Hey, a companion of fools suffers harm. Don't make idiots your best friends. It'll kill you. Like those, those are admonitions. And we're meant to actually have those on our lips. But also training, keeping in personal contact with each child to see what they need for their growth and development. And, and for both of these, the paideia and the nuthesia, the training and the instruction, it says, of the Lord. It's a specific kind. Of the Lord. A genitive of origin, to use my Greek skills here. That means that the training, both the trainings, the training and the admonitions are not just about the Lord. It's not coming from books about Jesus, necessarily. It's not just the information we learned about the Lord. It, it means it's coming from the Lord. It's the, it's the training and admonition that are coming from the Lord in our relationship with the Lord. The discipline and instruction that come from the Lord. That's, I love that. So Paul's not just telling dads to teach our kids about the Lord. He's saying we're to cultivate an environment, a nourishing environment where the training and ethical instruction that come to us from the Lord are being expressed through us as dads toward our kids. And there's only one way to do that. And that is to first experience the training and instruction of the Lord directly ourselves. First. And then father out of what we're receiving and what we're learning to receive from God. So I'd like to kind of end with two little points here about the written curriculum and the unwritten curriculum. The written curriculum, it means all the stuff that we teach our kids on purpose. The unwritten curriculum is about all the stuff we teach our kids through our example and through relationship, whether we know we're teaching it or not. The written curriculum is taught. The unwritten curriculum is caught. When people say, do as I say, not as I do, what they mean is, try to pay only attention to the written curriculum. But that's not realistic, is it? No, in fact, if our unwritten curriculum is, is teaching something contra- contradicting our written curriculum, then this will always be louder. Video will always be louder than radio, to use it, uh, that kind of con- connection. I don't know if that helps. Some of us are auditory learners, but it's a metaphor. So the written curriculum is all the stuff you mean to teach your kids by telling them things and by arranging your family culture a certain way to achieve a desired outcome. And the unwritten curriculum is all the stuff that actually matters to you, that you're actually motivated by, that's actually coming out of you in terms of the real fruit of your life. Again, unwritten curriculum is caught. But it seems to me that we need to leverage both of these. There's nothing wrong with a written curriculum. We're we're called to have one. I don't know how to fulfill these verses without having a plan, without having an intentionally chosen plan. And I don't know how this is going to work unless we also realize that the unwritten curriculum is going to make or break the whole thing, right? 
So it seems like it's a good idea to have a plan in terms of discipling our kids. And the adage holds true that if you fail to plan, you are planning to fail. So a plan for me as a dad, I think that means intentionally constructing a lifestyle that produces a dad who is bearing the kind of fruit that we want the kids to bear. We've all seen the foolishness of parents who have no faith, but they want their kids to go to Bible school to be taught right from wrong. You know what I'm talking about. That doesn't work because they're they're unteaching everything the kids are supposed to be learning at church. So all week long, I'm unteaching what in an hour on Sunday they heard said. Which one's going to be more formative, more shaping? So the plan is we want to choose a lifestyle that produces a certain kind of dad. A dad that prioritizes God and God's word and God's worship and God's people and God's mission. A plan that involves a pattern of our life being in prayer and, and in following Jesus and serving the body of Christ and in giving generously to those in need, but more, more importantly than anything else, in relating well to God and receiving of what God is saying to us in a place of, I don't know what the word is, authenticity, I guess? Arranging our life in such a way that we're, we're, we're really satisfied in God. It's like the most important thing. And then, when our life is arranged as a dad to, to find genuine satisfaction in God, then invite your kids into that lifestyle with you. I think there's this thing where we like compartmentalize things. Work dad, church dad, dad dad. But if our life is vibrantly satisfied in God, then we bring our kids into that. That's, that's discipleship. That's kind of how Jesus did it, isn't it? He simply invited his disciples to come along with him as he did his normal daily life. So if our normal daily life isn't vibrantly hopeful and full of peace and satisfaction in Jesus, then, then really we can't fulfill these passages. I mean, the plan might also involve some things like family devotions. I know that's a challenge for most of us. And if that's a real challenge for you, we have some resources available uh, that will make that less painful and less intimidating. But again, even though the written curriculum definitely matters, my advice is that family devotions is actually such a small piece of the picture that I'm less concerned about that piece than I am about how you're arranging your daily life for maximum thriving of you in God and then bringing your kids into, into that along with you. That's 100 times more important to me than whether you took 15 to 20 minutes to awkwardly sit there and hope that they can be quiet and you don't want to throw everything at, this, you know, at the wall. Maybe that's just my household, I don't know. So the issue is to organize your life, organize my life around vibrant relationship to God in Christ and then just bring them into that, bring them along. And because we can do all kinds of things for God and then require them to be there too. We can make them here every time the church doors open. But if we're bitter and anxious and constantly struggling and murmuring and complaining, 
because we don't unload our burdens on the Lord, then they might see that clearer than we do. I'm not trying to put guilt on us dads at all. I'm, I'm saying the best possible thing we can do for our kids is to walk incredibly closely with the Lord and then be affectionate and close to them. I heard D.A. Carson talk about growing up with his dad as a pastor in Canada and seeing his, his dad as a man of prayer and reverence, but also feeling like his dad was way wasting his life in a difficult context. And he was somewhat critical of his dad and felt like his dad was wasting his life. Why not go to Africa where there's people coming to Jesus and lots of baptisms? Why stay in this environment where almost no one gets saved? What, a, what are you doing wasting your life? Then he went away to seminary and his dad stayed because his dad felt that this is the Lord's will for my life. And uh, it was one of the few times he ever saw his dad rise up in anger. Is he quoted Paul saying, the passage where Paul has a dream and Jesus says, stay in this city for I have many people in this city. In other words, you're not seeing the fruit outwardly, but I'm telling you there's a behind the scenes. Don't you quit. That's what his dad said to him when he said, why don't you go somewhere else, man? Why, why are we wasting our lives here? Well, then Don went off to seminary, and in seminary, he took a, a church history class, rather a history of their denomination. And in the story of their denomination, he discovered all kinds of things that were going on in his dad's personal life that he never knew, though he lived in the house. He found out that that denomination went through a major uh, conflict, a major crisis, a big, uh, dramatic, mean-spirited schism over some doctrinal matters. And his dad was in the middle of it, taking some incredibly heated criticism. And the teacher pointed out Don Carson's dad as an example of Christ-like gentleness and reason in the midst of storm. And Don Carson never knew any of that was even happening. I don't know if that's personality profile. The dude was not a verbal processor. Maybe he was an introvert. Maybe it's all in his journals. I don't know. But what I do know is it didn't lead to the kind of bad fruit that caused D.A. Carson to turn away from Jesus or the church. It, whatever was going on in his dad, he carried it in relationship to God that caused his son to say, this is what I want to do with my life. Does that not like make something rise up and make you say, me too, I want that. So we can do this. He's not, God's not called us dads to do something impossible. He's not even called us to do something that's unlikely. He's called us to do something that's totally doable. Because he's here for us when we ask, because he can shape us, because he can form us, because his love covers a multitude of sins, both with regard to us between him, but also his love can cover a multitude of sins even among us. He can flow over our families and redeem and heal multitude of failures and mistakes in bad days. He can do a lot more than some of us feel when we're being really down on ourselves. Here's a story. My cousin Jeremy had a couple in his church who was complaining about their kids misbehaving and acting out and being troublemakers. And instead of sending them to a parenting class or giving them a parenting book, he sent them away to go have some inner healing prayer, kind of like what Sozo is. He sent them away not to work on the kids who were acting so badly, but to ignore the kids. 
and to seek a deeper connection with the Lord, to seek, to seek transformation of some things maybe they did, the parents didn't even know were wrong inside of them. They spent a week in Colorado at Healing the Heart Ministry or something like that. I forget the name. They came home, and within a matter of weeks, the children had completely changed. Isn't that weird? But the parents were 100% convinced that the problem was the kids. When the kids were actually living a reasonable outcome, a a, a rational, understandable response to a system that had been cultivated by the emotional stuff parents were projecting. And once they got healed and started to experience real affirmation of the Father, started to experience real healthy patterns of relating, started to experience real harmony in the way that they related to their differences, it just created a different family culture. And the kids walked out into the sunshine of a different family experience and said, I love that stuff. That's, That's intriguing to me. What made David, David, what made David such a mighty warrior? Slingshot skills? Or singing to the Father when no one was around? I know we want, we, like, us dads are like, we want to raise our boys to be men and our girls to be like self-assured and unable to be led astray by some moron who likes their body. Do you know what I mean? Like, duh. This is what we want. We want our children to thrive and be strong and to be healthy. But our goal is not to make them just kids with self-esteem or confidence. Our goal is to, is to cultivate a relationship with God in them where they can hear what his estimation of them is which is so much more durable and life-giving than self-esteem. And I'm all for self-esteem. That's not an unhealthy thing. But God's esteem is 100,000 times more powerful and life-giving. And I want kids to be confident, but, but why was David so confident that he said, with my God, I can scale a wall? When he stands before Goliath, he doesn't say, I've practiced my sling, here I come. He says, God was with me with the lion. God was with me with the bear. And now I'm coming for you. And, and what we want to impart to our kids as dads is not just the same stuff the world imparts, wants to impart. What, what we, uh, and some of that stuff is really wise and really helpful. I'm not down on that. I'm saying but we have something that only God can give that we can impart to them. Only Jesus can really reveal to them their created value to him, their created destiny. And only God is the one who's like, I will be with you as the source of his life. That's, this is God's standard behavior, right? To Moses, he says, he doesn't say, well, you know, you're actually a better public speaker than you think. No, he says, I'm with you. Who made the tongue? To Gideon, he doesn't say, you know, actually, you don't come from a lame family of weaklings. You're really amazing. No, what he says is, here's why you're a mighty warrior. I'm with you. And on and on you could go. God's encouragement is usually the same throughout the whole Bible. And it's not to pump people up with, you're amazing. 
It's I'm with you. In fact, it's so funny. He says to Paul, I like it best when you're weak and feeling completely in over your head because then I get to come and show off and lift it. Put the, I, I'm the wind in your sails. You don't even have a motor. So that's what we dads want to impart to our kids. Not just that we tell them you're awesome and you're amazing and you can do it, but we want to impart to them the faith in God that connects them to the source that will, that will guide them in life well after we're out of the picture. All right, that's probably enough. Yeah.